WFYI podcast brought to you by Bloomington, Indiana, an American college town offering food and drink, college sports, outdoor activities, live music, cool art, and good times daily. Everyone is welcome in Bloomington. More information at visitbloomington.com. A long-awaited outside review of Indiana law enforcement. The state Supreme Court tries to help prevent evictions, plus student absences during the pandemic, and more on Indiana Week in Review for the week ending October 29th, 2021. Indiana Week in Review is made possible by the supporters of Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations and by Ice Miller, a full-service law firm committed to helping clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com. This week, some of Indiana's law enforcement agencies are changing the way they operate based on an outside review of the state's policing policies and procedures. Governor Eric Holcomb ordered the third-party review more than a year ago as part of his plan for greater diversity, equity, and inclusion in state government. The Indiana State Police has already implemented some of its recommendations. That includes outfitting every frontline trooper with a body camera, something Holcomb announced last year. The State Police have also committed to tracking incidents where troopers use force to review and analyze them. Other agencies have pledged to implement report recommendations, including the State Training Academy and Board. The Academy will develop de-escalation training specifically for those dealing with mental health challenges. It also says it will put together a work group to reevaluate training methods, potentially including implicit bias training. The report recommends mandating implicit bias training. The training board says it will support legislative changes that add civilians as voting members. How impactful will how impactful rather will this outside report be? It's the first question for our Indiana Week in Review panel. Democrat Elise Schrock. Republican Mike O'Brien, John Schwannis, host of Indiana Lawmakers, and Nikki Kelly, Statehouse reporter for the Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette. I'm Indiana Public Broadcasting Statehouse reporter Brandon Smith. Elise Schrock, the Black Caucus this week, said that they were pleased with what they've seen so far out of the Holcomb administration. Are they right? Should Hoosiers be pleased? So what they said was they are pleased to see what has occurred so far and they are looking forward to seeing committed action. And I think that's the same thing that Hoosiers are looking for. This study, uh, the criminal justice reform that was passed in the last session, I'm not diminishing any of it. I'm just saying that it is only part of what needs to happen. We are unwinding centuries of systemic racism and um, systems that have um, evolved over time. So this is the start. Um, It's been wonderful to see the Black Caucus push for many of these um, policies. The communities that are behind a lot of the, the pushes that have um, created this type of action that we're seeing um, from the governor and from the state house. But this is a, one of a few steps that need to happen as we keep moving forward. And I think Hoosiers have expectations for that to happen. Mike O'Brien, so far Governor Holcomb is getting a thumbs up from criminal justice reform advocates um, on how he's implemented already some of the things that are in this third-party report. Um, How much longer does he keep getting that thumbs up? So essentially, what needs to happen next to continue getting those those high marks? A couple things, implementing these changes at an administrative level, and then, excuse me, also um, implementing whatever legislative uh, changes need need to take place. And uh, Elise referenced the, the criminal justice reforms that took place last session. I think one 
that were passed on a broad bipartisan basis at a, at a pretty contentious time for these issues nationally. I think one thing that Indiana, and this is bipartisan, um, and I think that all of these elected officials deserve a lot of credit for this. If you look at how polarizing this issue has been coming out of the, the riots of the uh, summer of 2020, there are places that where, where you have Republicans on the far right that won't acknowledge at all that there is a problem, that they are staunch defenders, black, black and white, so to speak, of the police. Um, it won't allow for even acknowledge that there's systemic issues. Um, on the other hand, you on the other end of the political spectrum, you have a complete defund the police effort. Indiana's taken a very thoughtful approach. Democrats initially uh, criticized Governor Holcomb for how long this process was going to take, that they were going to take a year. But as Elise pointed out, we're, un, we're, we're trying to bend our institutions of government and our, our law enforcement institutions uh, to acknowledge and, and recognize the, these systemic biases when they take place and come up with strategies and new training methods to to change the direction and, and to fundamentally change that in society. And that takes that this took time and it will continue to take time. But it, it, the Holcomb administration, Republicans and Democrats in the legislature are clearly committed to it. Nikki Kelly, um, there's potential more legislative changes, even uh, included in the report. For instance, the report suggests putting civilians as voting members on the Indiana Law Enforcement Training Board, which, um, you know, the board says it will support. I don't know if support is the same as push for, but uh, it will support that change. But how likely is it, do you think, that the legislature will dive deeply into any further police reforms, at least in 2022? Mm, it, it's a short session, and I think they're going to have some other things on their on their radar, so I'm not sure. A lot of this is, I mean, the, the report was full of interesting tidbits. Not, there were no, like, what I would call stunning revelations, but there were interesting issues. You know, for instance, we, we track excessive force incidents, but we don't do anything with them. We don't even, nothing in the system even identifies patterns, such as an officer who has repetitive incidents. Those are things that can be handled in, in algorithms and things like that. And also, I think a key thing, and, and the legislature might have to get involved in this a little, um, is we have obviously the Law Enforcement Training Academy, but we also have satellite academies. And they, none of, there's no, baseline curriculum that they all agree on. So they're all sort of teaching around the same topics and much of the same stuff. But I think we're going to look for sort of a baseline level and then local academies can go a little more in depth if they choose. John Schwann is uh, sort of the same question in looking ahead to the 2022 legislative session. Do you think lawmakers will sort of nibble around the edges of this report and pick off anything they think might be easy and and relatively uncontroversial, or do they get a little deeper? I, I think the nibble around the edges, uh, Brandon, is is an apt way to put it. Uh, when you look back, dial back the clock a year at this point, there was considerable effort led uh, by Greg Sturwald, a Republican committee chair who was uh, basically the architect of, of the uh, criminal justice reform that ultimately passed with broad bipartisan support. That was a, a heavy lift. I mean, there was ultimately it was it was supported by both sides of the aisle. But I mean, just the the, the information gathering, the hearings, the, the the legwork that was done prior to that, it, it was impressive. And it was something that other states around the country should uh, take note that how well Indiana uh, did it. Uh, so right now, I think a lot of lawmakers feel that we're a little bit ahead of the game. Uh, we don't need to open this all up and, and kind of 
you know, start from scratch. We're already ahead of most states in terms of the, the reforms that have taken place, which gets us back, Brandon, to nibble around the edges. If there are some, some things there that uh, could be done that were illuminate, illuminated by this report, I think that that would happen. But again, the sense that I think is pervades the General Assembly right now is, you know, we did something that a lot of other states should have done. We did it well. Uh, we're not done completely, but let's let's kind of sit back and see where this leads us. Yeah, you mentioned Greg Stewart, he and Black Caucus Chair Robin Shackelford, the architects really of House Bill 1006 last year that was hailed uh, not just around the state, but around the country, as you point out. But we'll see if they can conjure up some magic again in 2022, <laughs> if there's an appetite for that. Uh, Indiana housing advocates fear the state Supreme Court's effort to help curb evictions won't be very effective. The court's order requires judges to tell landlords and tenants in an eviction hearing about available resources, so emergency rental assistance, legal help, and a state landlord-tenant settlement program. Prosperity Indiana's Andrew Bradley says the order is a good start, but he says the state's policy landscape is still a major problem. We haven't done things like make a settlement conference require um, or that we don't have source of income protection that would require um, providers to accept money that has been allocated, such as this emergency rental assistance. The court's order doesn't require landlords to work with tenants to use those resources and avoid evictions. And Bradley notes that the Supreme Court task force that recommended the order didn't include many community organizations that work directly with Hoosiers going through evictions. Mike O'Brien, does a program like this really accomplish anything if nothing is really mandatory? I think it does. I mean, it's important to remember that um, when you're poor or when you're housing insecure, when you're food insecure, saying to someone, well, aren't you aware of the federal pre-eviction diversion resources? I mean, that's that's like, you might as well speak that in a different language. It's, it's hard to do everything when you're in that situation, much less leverage, you know, some kind of like state government that isn't helping you connect the dots. And I think that's what that's what this helps do when you're in that situation and the, and the court can, can guide and direct uh, those resources. You know, I think it's also important to remember that you know, we, we do vilify these, these landlords in these, in these situations. And so not putting in source of income protection was, was referenced. And it, it's maybe intuitive to think, well, why wouldn't they just take the money and move on? And, and the answer is that these most, most of the time, these aren't like conglomerate corporations that are, that own these rental units. It's people that have like their livelihood and maybe their retirement or all of their net worth tied up in these um, in these facilities and they need consistent sources of, of income and need to take that into consideration when they're when they're deciding how to how to move forward um, and and make sure that they're able to, that they're not being ruined in, in the process so it's it's complicated I, it, it has to be that all said it it does seem like it could be easier to get this money to the people that that needed and you look around the country and too much of this money is just it's just sitting still um, when it should have been out a long time ago yeah Lee Schrock essentially the same question. Yeah, Nobody, just, nobody's expecting this to be the, the silver bullet. Nobody's suggesting that. But is it going to make enough of a difference if you're just telling people about it? Well, I think, first of all, in a recent study that was done by a couple of Indy Star reporters, they did find that many of these evictions happening to Hoosiers, at least, are from corporate landlords um, and, and some of them from out of state. So that's something we need to address. We also need to talk about the greater context of uh, the attitude towards tenants in Indiana. In 2020, we saw uh, Senate Enrolled Act 148 um, that really, it didn't just tip the scales in the favor of landlords, it it really like ripped 
a lot of rights out of the hands of tenants. And that happened in 2020. We saw a pandemic. We were told that there would be an eviction crisis likely to happen. And then the State House Republicans doubled down and overrode the veto of that bill. So we're working already in an environment where we have taken away a lot of rights from tenants. So when they do get this help that they're being told they can seek, some landlords aren't even taking it. So we have a lot of underlying issues and they didn't just start with the pandemic. They started before the pandemic with the type of um, environment that we set up for tenants and, and the way we treat them. John Schwannis, Michael Bryan mentioned that a lot of states, Indiana included, are sitting on a lot of this uh, emergency rental assistance money. They can't connect it to the people who need it. Is one of the problems there that the landlord has to agree to it first? Uh, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of reasons why these funds are not getting uh, dispersed as quickly as certainly uh, renters would like to see or as quickly as landlords would like to see. But that is one issue. Uh, once a few states have uh, made a little bit of progress, I don't think any state is saying, wow, we knocked this out of the park. We've given all the funds out. Everybody's happy. That That's not any, I don't know of that state, but some states have teamed up with courts uh, and to target the landlords where they sense uh, their records indicate that there are multiple uh, tenants in arrears and they will go to the to the landlords and say, you know, you have X number of units that are have fallen behind. Let's do this, uh, not piecemeal. Let's see if we can do this as a package. Again, easier said than done. And it's it's had a modicum of success, but not the kind of uh, cure all that will solve this problem and make people whole on either side of the equation. Uh, uh, because as Mike says, there are people who depend on this cash who are landlords. Then there's no way that I know of to say write regulation that says if you're a big corporate mean ogre from out of state, you know we treat you one way. But if you're uh, a retired couple that depends on this, we treat you another way. I, I'm not I'm not sure how you'd write that regulation that would stand up in court. Nikki Kelly, um, a version I guess of the question I asked you on the last topic, which is, do you foresee any significant? Uh, legislation in the 2022 session dealing with the eviction issue? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's a really hard balance because I think part of the problem now, and we've mentioned that some, you know, landlords don't want to accept the money is, you know, some of these relationships have gotten really sour, you know, between tenants and landlords and going on for more than a year. So they're trying to make a decision between maybe a one-time catch-up versus, a totally new situation. Cause even if you catch that landlord up for a little bit, who says we're not in the same position again in three months, you know, so they're having to make decisions kind of on that. I myself am a landlord. I have one tenant, <laughs> but uh, so obviously not a corporate person and we've worked with her over the, over the years and we will do anything to keep her, but some people don't have that option. All right, time now for viewer feedback. Each week, we pose an unscientific online poll question in conjunction with our Ice Miller email and text alerts. This week's question, should Indiana landlords be required to take emergency rental assistance funds before they can evict someone? A, yes, or B, no. Last week, we asked you whether the state should try to measure student characteristics beyond test scores, such as communication skills and work ethic. 44% of you say yes, 56% say no, the state should not be getting into that. 
If you'd like to take part in the poll, go to WFYI.org slash IWIR and look for the poll. Well, nearly one in five Indiana students missed so much school last year, they were considered chronically absent by the state. From Indiana Public Broadcasting, Dylan Pierce McCoy reports the increase was especially significant for black students. Last year was chaotic for all Indiana students as school flipped between in-person and online classes. But for some children, the disruptions were a lot more severe. New data from the Indiana Education Department shows that almost 40% of black students were chronically absent. That means they missed 10% or more of school days. Gwen Kelly is an education consultant. She says the higher rate of absenteeism for black students exposes inequities that existed before the pandemic. It's appalling, not surprising. We had uh, a crisis in, in child care. We had a crisis in Internet service. We had a crisis in health. Schools say attendance problems were worse for students who were learning remotely. They hope more consistent in-person instruction this year will improve attendance. John Schwannis, it feels like we've sort of had to shrug off so many things about last school year. Oh, it was the pandemic. We'll fix it going forward. Can we really shrug, shrug this one off? No, I, I, you can't shrug a large segment of the population off, young people, and just say, well, that's COVID. Uh, you know, we, we talk about COVID long haulers and, and we talk about whether it's the long-term effects on our respiratory systems or our heart or our cognitive function. The ultimate long haulers, if I can use a metaphor here, are the kids who have been were caught in this situation. And if we don't take steps to remedy that, uh, I, it's a lifelong uh, disadvantage. Other, you know, employers they can get funds back. Uh, small businesses can perhaps uh, retool with with state assistance and hire again. Virtually everything can be fixed. Uh, I mean, if you survive COVID. Uh, you can have the, the the economic problems that were associated with it fixed. If you're a student who suffered uh, basically a lost year, and particularly at a, at a point in your schooling where it might be dealing with fundamentals of, of language or fundamentals of, of mathematics and reasoning, no, we can't shrug them off, uh, or they will be just forever the lost generation, so to speak. Nikki Kelly, how much more... Not that these numbers are, are, are unimportant. I'm not suggesting that for a second. Um, but will this school year's absentee numbers be the ones that people look at a little close, more closely and go, okay, well, how real is the problem? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think you need to, to see the difference between the last year and this year. Obviously, we've had more in-person learning this year. We still ha- are having a lot of quarantines and, you know, I'm not exactly sure, like, if a kid is quarantined and they're working remotely, does that count as absent? And obviously, we know a lot of kids in poverty don't have the computers at home or the Internet to work remotely when they're quarantined. So then they're sort of out of the thing. But I would definitely want to see, you know, to see how much it improved this year. It definitely had to improve some just based on having more kids in the classroom. Um, and, and this isn't one of those things I think you can throw a bunch of money at because, you know, there's only still so much time in the day to remediate kids and things like that. Although, uh, to that point, uh, Mike O'Brien, the Indiana General Assembly, allocated a significant amount of money for what it called learning loss. 
um, in this last session. There was a lot of money coming from the federal government for the same purposes, to try and help catch students up. But to that point, money can only get you so far. There's only so much time in the day. How long are we going to see the, the sort of ripple effects of this problem? Well, we're going to have to look at the back end of this. The legislature did do a lot. Um, one, they raised education funding across the board to almost $1.9 billion. Um, in addition to then providing a pool of money that schools that were measuring larger losses uh, could apply for these grant for, for grant dollars that would add money on top of that. Um, they they made a change that, that fully funded schools for virtual learning at the, where they didn't take a cut and that counted like an in-person uh, uh, like they were actually attending in person so that uh, schools weren't penalized for that. So on the money side, they try to take care of that. There's plenty of money, money available. The resource issue is an issue. I mean, there are so many hours in the day. Um, there's homebound remediation, there's tutoring, there's other things that you can, um, that you can do. I mean, generally the, the disproportionate effect on African-Americans and COVID wasn't just this. I mean, they're, they're disproportionately a larger number of overdetermined essential, but part-time workers. Um, or lower income workers that were sent that were sent home. I mean, the, the shut it down, everyone go home thing was uh, protocol was was a privilege for um, for a lot of us that weren't affected negatively uh, by that. We just went home, you know, and a lot of people couldn't do that. So uh, there's there's a ripple effect well beyond, as it was stated, uh, just attendance. And I think this awakening that we've had um, for a lot of white people, I will say um, that there are systemic inequities, means that criminal justice reform is part of this. It means that housing, um, making sure that people are housing secure is part of this. Education is part of this. You know, we've talked about these issues in a lot of different topics, even in this show. Um, but this is all part of a larger systemic issue um, that we need to repair um, and, and make sure that everyone has equitable access. So moving forward, I think, you know, while we tend to silo these issues, we have to address them in full and realize that we, you know, like John, Mike have said, there are large swaths of our population that don't have the same access as everyone else. And, and we need to be doing something about it. Well, Twitter suspended Indiana Republican Congressman Jim Banks's official account this week after it took down a post about a, about a transgender woman that the social media company said violated its rules. Banks posted tweets last week about Dr. Rachel Levine becoming the first openly transgender four-star officer in the United States Uniformed Services. Banks had responded to the U.S. Surgeon General congratulating Levine on her promotion in the U.S. Public Health Service Commission Corps by writing, the title of first female four-star officer gets taken by a man. The post was removed with a reference to Twitter rules that include a ban on targeted misgendering of trans people. Banks's official Twitter account remained online, but he wasn't allowed to add new posts. His personal account, with fewer followers, remained active. Nikki Kelly, I am not taking this issue lightly from multiple directions, and this is going to sound like a joke. And it sort of is, but it sort of isn't. How jealous is Todd Rokita right now? Um, obviously, Attorney General Rokita has taken the issue of what he considers big tech censorship to be a big deal. He, I believe, admitted trying to get his account suspended last year. So um, he's probably watching very, very interestingly. Uh, no movement on the bank situation. 
it's been about a week now. He still can't use his official account. He's using his personal account to try to move some of those followers over. So I guess we're going to have to just wait and see who blinks first, Twitter or the congressman. John Schwannis, as a First Amendment absolutist, of course, this is not necessarily a First Amendment issue because Twitter is not a government, at least not yet, before this world changes really more substantially. Um, but is the company right to censor people in this way? You know, uh, you gave me quite a setup here. I, I don't know. I only have one answer. I'm an absolutist, right? So, you know, it's difficult. It is difficult when you wade into the process of trying to determine what is acceptable and what is not. Uh, I mean, because our opinions and our viewpoints on that differ. And yes, they've looked at finding uh, panels of individuals that represent a broad spectrum of the American public to weigh in on these issues and try to come up with best practices. But as long as we're not a monolithic nation where we all uh, march to the same tune and believe the same things, I I would not want to be in that role. Uh, You know, the ability to say something legally and, and the common sense that goes with saying that thing and the fallout that comes with saying that thing, those are two different matters. I'm an absolutist on one. The other one is more of a, a, a tough uh, nut to crack. Yeah, I think Jim Banks' statement referenced that, you know, Twitter can't cancel him. And that's true because, for one, his account is still up even if he can't post from it. But for two, he can post from another account. So pretty sure you can't cry cancel culture on this one. Uh, but that is Indiana Week in Review for this week. Our panel is Democrat Elise Schrock, Republican Mike O'Brien, John Schwanis of Indiana Lawmakers, and Nikki Kelly of the Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette. If you'd like a podcast of this program, you can find it at wfyi.org slash iwir, or starting Monday, you can stream it or get it on demand from Xfinity and on the WFYI app. I'm Brandon Smith of Indiana Public Broadcasting. Have a safe and happy Halloween. Please get vaccinated if you can, and join us next time, because a lot can happen in an Indiana week. Indiana Week in Review is made possible by the supporters of Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations and by Ice Miller. Ice Miller is a full-service law firm committed to helping clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com. The opinions expressed are solely those of the panelists. Indiana Week in Review is a WFYI production in association with Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations.